0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. In this episode, we are going to talk about soil testing and soil sampling and physical analysis of soils and nutrient analysis of soils. I am so glad to be joined by Brian Mavis, the owner of Mavis Consulting Limited. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut, Brian.
1: Well, good morning, Micah. Thanks for having me. And uh, I know we've been trying to put this together for a while now, and it's uh, great to be able to finally do it.
0: It sure is. I checked uh, the email exchange. Um, so uh, the recent emails that we that we exchanged last year in May, at the end of May, 2023, <laughs> I wrote an email and I said I saw your GCM article. Uh, the The title of that article was "Putting Green Physical." No, 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 no. Turf testing techniques from GCM, Golf Course Management Magazine, in May 2023. I said, great article. Really enjoyed reading it. And then I saw I'd written to you again in October, and I said, I was looking for something about particle sizes and specifically about pickup, mower pickup of coarse and medium and uh, different uh, sand particle sizes and somewhere in some archive i stumbled across a superb article that you'd written in 2014 based on some research that you'd done or maybe it was it was posted on your website perhaps and yeah. and then i said that was awesome and we had an email exchange i said i want to uh invite you on the ATC double cut to talk about this stuff cuz you know so much about physical testing i want to learn and then you said all right, let's, let's get it scheduled when <laughs> we both have time. And uh, now, five months later, we, we both have time.
1: Perfect. Nope, looking forward to it. And uh, no, it's a great opportunity to hopefully uh, help some others out that have similar questions. So looking forward to uh, the time together here.
0: Well, thank you. And you're back recently from the GCSA conference in Phoenix, and, and you taught a seminar there and the title of that seminar is putting green physical properties from construction to maintenance. And I wanted to ask you, I, I checked the GCSA website and it said that was sold out. I know that's a hot topic. Um, Can you kind of give me a, a 30,000 foot view uh, summary of what gets covered in that seminar?
1: Yeah. So the, the like the like the title says, from construction to maintenance, um, the physical properties. So, one I cover um, basically first and foremost is if you're going to go through a renovation or construction project, have a plan for some QC testing. And yeah, you want to test the mix to know what it is in the beginning, but then have some QC protocol in place because unfortunately, sometimes when I get called into Uh, Sites, it's because some of that wasn't done ahead of time and um, some of the greens aren't performing like the others. And it comes back to that the mix didn't stay the same through the whole project, or there's question in place of whether or not things were done properly uh, for the construction of things. So first and foremost, I try to start out with that, uh, have a plan in place. So that's kind of the beginning of the presentation. And then we go through types of construction, I mean, USGA, California style greens, um, probably the biggest growing trend right now is a lot of greens I work with or projects I work with, they're building greens without uh, any gravel in them. So no gravel layer in the drain lines, no gravel underneath. So it's a non-perched sand-based green. Um, just a lot of uh, clubs, at least in my area, um, we have get 30 to 40 inches of rainfall a year. There's plenty of water to go around. And I know that's not the case around the world and throughout the rest of the country, but there's not a need to hang up all that moisture and perch that system. And I see a lot of the issues with iron layers or black layer that forms in a lot of perched type greens. So um, we cover that trend and give guys, uh, superintendents a little more confidence on, yeah, maybe an alternative type of construction and then so go from the construction side of things so pick out um, cover some different types and methods of construction and then we go into okay greens mix what makes a good greens mix um, starting with the sand properties and then we'd look at uh, the different amendments that we can add to it to kind of reach some different goals and I always tell them try to work it backwards a little bit every course um, there building it for different reasons and so how does it need to perform so some need to perform at the highest level others need to handle a lot of play so we can change our construction methods based based on that so i really cover different types of greens mixes really get into the sand properties and qualities and then once we get through the construction side of things then i also go into okay now that the greens are built um, what do we need to do to maintain them so that they can perform like we want long term? And then that gets into the monitoring of the physical properties of existing greens. Um, like you have with the OM246, organic matter is definitely a major component of that. And then, but also just as we've talked about in the mix design, those sand particle sizes are extremely important as well. So um, monitoring the physical properties and the particle sizes, the organic matter, infiltration rates, all that. Um, so try to go from start to beginning of, uh, the life of a green and, um, in two hours time, we try to cover that. And I know that was more than 30 seconds, but (laughs) that's a two hour talk.
0: That, that is, uh, that is interesting to cover that much material in two hours. Uh, because I would think that the people in that seminar may have some questions and, I would think it, it's hard to get through that stuff because sand physical properties, just like the question of, okay, uh, should we like, like let's talk about coefficient of uniformity. Uh, Adam Miller just posted a a really interesting chart, uh, a particle size distribution curve. He posted on Twitter a couple of days ago and there's been a kind of an ongoing discussion with, um, you know, people from from Europe, people from the United States look at, at me in Thailand kind of saying, okay, this is interesting. And we start talking about the coefficient of uniformity and uh, people talk about whether like you need to have a coefficient of uniformity that's within the 3.5 maximum value on the USGA recommendations or if you can go beyond that and like i would think that's enough for a 2 hour seminar right there <laughs> if just somebody raised that question and said hey can i make my greens firmer by uh increasing the coefficient of un- uniformity um i i guess that's a two part question uh, how how do you get through that much material in 2 hours <laughs> and uh and then let's let's talk about sand gradation and uh coefficient of uniformity after that
1: <laughs> sure <laughs> no it's it is uh i usually fill the full 2 hours it uh with questions i always plan for some but it's that's probably the my favorite part of giving the presentations is the feedback and interaction with uh everybody who's attending and those questions um yeah, we could easily spend way more time on one of those topics. And I try to present it and make sure they're aware of it. And here's what it is. And here's some parameters you want to be in. And if we want to dive into it more, we can. But yeah, usually I'm known to fill up the whole time. And I try, I have roughly 140 slides for that two hours. And uh, we move. It, I try to keep it fast-paced because um, that's what I enjoy as a an attendee in an audience. And I know one of my favorite presenters was uh, Dr. Ron Calhoun at Michigan State. His talks were always fast-paced, and I really enjoyed that. And um, so, plug there for Ron. It's been a while since uh, I've seen him present, but um, okay. no. So I try to get through stuff really quick. And see you is something that um, yeah, it's, it's almost like a buzzword. It's like, what's your CU? What's your CU? And, um, that's definitely a very important measurement or calculation that's made based on those, uh, the sand. Um, but it's one of those, you could have a good CU, but the sand might not be very good and it's still not preferable just because it depends on more so on how those particle sizes break down and where they all fall. So, and you asked the question about can we build greens out of something that's higher than 3.5 well i've over the last 24 years i've worked with a lot of greens that they were built with something that's well above five on a cu um it's basically roadbed sand um something that wants to pack in really hard and firm still perks really well because there's a lot of very coarse material in there um so yeah i've seen it done and i've got a list of what not to do on for building greens and that's definitely up there because they've also added soil to that sand and it uh it likes to form concrete almost it still somehow allows water to move through there but it packs in really tight and uh yeah turf roots usually don't stay in there very well
0: yeah Let's talk a little bit more yeah. in, in detail about this topic. Uh, I, I heard from Chuck Barber. He said, man, you need to talk to Brian because Brian uh, knows so much about this. Uh, and so we're talking about uh, not... Now, but let, actually, let me give a little bit of background here. Um, uh, for me personally, I studied uh, soil nutrition. Much more than I studied soil physics, so I I'm pretty familiar with like um, uh, you know fertilizer and, and nutrients and soil testing for that and stuff. I haven't paid so much attention to physical properties because I just assume like okay. The USGA has their, their recommendations for a method of putting green construction. It's got all these tables and instructions in there. So you all you have to do is send to a lab and then let the people from the lab write back to you on the report and let you know if it's within the recommendations or not. Like, it seemed pretty easy to me. It seemed to me almost like a, um, a problem that had already been solved. And so honestly, I, I didn't pay very much attention to it. It's only over the past few years that I have done. And I I think the first time was I heard uh, Norm Hummel on a podcast with Frank Rossi in about 2015 talk about uh, not just like choosing a fine or a coarse sand, uh, because it's like maybe if you choose a finer sand, you could get more sand down and the greens might be firmer. And then Norm said, no, no, no. But if you want to try to make the greens firmer, you might try to choose a sand that had a higher CU. And I was like, well, I haven't ever really paid it. I would seen like a CU value on test reports, but I didn't really pay much attention to it. Ever since then, I've thought, well, that would be a trick if you could just use a special kind of sand with a higher CU to improve firmness. That would be good. And then I, shortly after that, I got into the OM two four six testing because I was like, well, clearly, if we've got a nice sand and we build a nice green, but then we get too much organic material right at the surface, that that ruins the properties of the green so we need to manage that organic matter and you mentioned to me in some private calls that we had as part of brookside's amplified network of consultants and we were sharing information among ourselves and you said mikey this om246 is pretty uh pretty interesting but i think you're missing something because you're not you're not really checking if people's fine material is building up over time. You're not checking. If you're just checking organic matter, you might be missing about the fines at the surface. So I'm like, I'm like, uh, maybe it doesn't matter so much. But actually, this guy does know a lot more about physical properties than I do. And like, I I couldn't ever forget it. And I'm like, you know, the other thing, I know golf course superintendents would be worried about that too. I'm like, why am I not checking this? So I've, I've started checking that now. And awesome. then I'm like, now I need to understand what these results mean. And so then I see, okay, we've got, you can have coarse sand, medium sand, fine sand, very fine sand. And then I start hearing from people, they're talking about gradation, gradation, about uh, like some kind of balance- between the amount of sand on different sieve sizes, so yeah, so I'm kind of new to this, um, but that's like a long background story for me about why I, now I'm now I'm really interested in it, and maybe I can talk with a little bit of, uh, of of coherence about it. But what is gradation, and and is it something that people should worry about, and 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 we do we go beyond CU? Uh, to look at that? And if so, how do we do that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, I I always like to start with the USGA recommendation or guideline. Um, It's, I think it's a really good starting point. It gets you in the ballpark. Now, if we really want to fine tune that, then so their guideline and recommendation on on record is greater than or equal to 60% medium to coarse size particles. Well, you could have 90 to 100 percent on those two sieves and it would still meet the USGA guidelines. And they'll be the first ones to tell you, no, that's too uniform. And that would result in a CU that's really low. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be shifty and unstable and uh, not what you want long term. Um, Have some greens been built out of something similar to that? Yes, um, they are a major challenge to grow in and get established. If we change the sand, um, once we start with some cultural practices, we can get them to firm up, but that might be three to five years down the are road. Th-
0: are those the type of sand? So, if, so those would be the ones, that if you drive a sprayer or a triplex across it, and it leaves tire tracks, and then uh, and you just can't figure out why this keeps happening?
1: Yeah, it- yeah, that's, it's too much sand on one or two sieves. I've seen some sands that's 70% on one sieve, all on that medium. And it's just really, really narrow, narrow gradation, I guess, if uh, uh, you want to use that term as well. But if we've got it all on one sieve, um, the best analogy I always use in my presentation is uh, if you've ever been to those uh, play areas for the kids that have the ball pits, mm-hmm. all those balls are the same size and they're all round. And what are, do the kids walk on top of the balls or do they sink in? And yeah, you know, they fall right in because they're all the same size, and then obviously shape uh, plays a part of that as well. And it's like it does with the sand—if it's a round sand, it's going to be that much shiftier and that much softer.
0: And I guess, um, I guess maybe not everybody that's listening or watching this is going to be as familiar with sieve sizes and particle sizes and um, and and CU. So maybe maybe I'll, CU stands for coefficient of uniformity. And uh, the way that I understand it is if you have a lot of particles that are all the same size, you're going to have a lower CU. If all the particles are exactly the same size, the CU of the sand should be 1. So the lowest value that you could get is 1. Uh, which is mean means everything is on the same sieve it's it's all roughly the same particle size and those those type of sands are poorly graded they're, they're that's called poorly graded but actually any type of of sand that meets the USGA recommendations is going to be by definition poorly graded uh by road construction standards standards Yeah. right because all of this is engineering stuff i i think from building base and road base um because they need something that compacts and then it can support a bridge foundation or it can support a interstate highway and so they're looking for something that has a a, a lot of particles of all different sizes so that they can all fit together but the USGA green is designed to be resistant to compaction and to allow water to move through so it's already quite poorly graded so it's just a matter of how poorly graded uh is it um and i i don't would you would you like i want you to share some of your expertise or is it or is it or is it impossible to generalize Do you have to just uh look at it on an individual sand by sand basis
1: so I guess one generalization I can make for sure and this isn't just my my findings or my experience it's um, a lot of the other consultants around the world um, that are part of the amplified network too um, this is kind of a collaboration so yeah the USG recommendation is for greater than or equal to sixty percent medium to course well, most of our sands, the vast majority are subangular to sub rounded. They're not true, uh, um, very angular material like a manufactured sand. Most of the sands we're going to use are more of that subangular to sub rounded. The truly rounded stuff is going to be more of your beach sand or your dune sand. And hopefully, not many are building out of that stuff or constructing greens out of that material because that will be uh, very uniform and shifty and unstable. But um, that greater than or equal to 60% medium course, well, if we can fine tune that a little bit to make sure, one, we don't go over 75% between those two. So between 60 and 75% is a really good range. And then the other side of that is no more than 50% on one sieve. So you could have... Yeah, you could have 40% coarse and 35% medium and you're at 75 total between those two. That works really well for a subangular sand or subangular to sub-rounded sand. Um, you could have, I would say the majority of the sands I see are more like a 45% medium and maybe a 30% course. So again, you're at 75% between those two. Now, occasionally you'll run into some that hit 80% and they still perform pretty well. Um, They're firm enough, stable enough that they can support the sprayer, the mowers, uh, foot traffic and all that. Um, But if you stay closer to that 75%, you're going to be a lot better off.
0: So don't don't read that as greater than 60% and then think the more the merrier and try to hit 90. You're actually trying to be like just over 60, no more than 75 and that's going to tend to be more stable but that's not enough. You also need to look at how it's divided between the course and the medium sieve.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just don't want too much all on one. Like you said there. Yep.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's good. It's a good thing. I didn't attend your seminar because I think <laughs> I would just ask a lot of questions. Um, because that's how I'm, we all
1: learn though. Right. That's how we all learn.
0: I, I think so. I, I yep. learn a lot when I'm teaching something and, uh, And I I think we all can learn when people ask questions. Um, Because when something's not clear, it means maybe the person who's teaching it uh, didn't explain it as well as it could have been. And like, yeah, I I think we learn by having conversations. And I learned something right now. So thank you so much. Well, um, that's good. So I'm going to put a direct link to your website Um, I know you have some stuff for download where people can, can, uh, can, or they can certainly get in touch with you if they have more questions, but there is some stuff for download to read. And I'll also put a direct link to the article that you wrote about, uh, physical testing of existing greens, basically in the, uh, that really good article in, uh, golf course management from May of 2023, I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes so people can get more information about some of this physical testing. But now I want to change the subject and talk about nutrients. If, <clears throat> if, if you will.
1: Yep. Sure.
0: Okay. Awesome. Uh, let's see. So this is the ATC double cut. So usually regular watchers or listeners of this show know that usually I jump right into one of the ATC blog posts. Um, and, and that's where we're coming to now to that stage of, the ATC double cut. Um, but I first wanted to talk with Brian about some of that physical testing stuff. And who knows, if, if we have time, we may talk about it a little bit more. Um, I now want to share my screen and look at, I, I've just brought up, uh, up a post called uh, Turfgrass Soil Sampling part one of seven. So that's showing on the screen now. I'm going to put a direct link to this in the show notes also. And this is about standard recommendations for composite soil sampling. And uh, this is something where I'd read an article in 2019 or early 2020, by Lawrence et al. Carl Guillard is one of the authors on this also. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Connecticut. And that that was about agricultural soil sampling, and it's called Guiding Soil Sampling Strategies using classical and spatial statistics, a review. I read, <coughs> excuse me, I read that, I was fascinated. I sent out a poll, ask people how they do samples, and I started looking into what standard uh, recommendations are for soil sampling. Because um, I just think, like, it's, that was something that I thought was settled also. Uh, that's something that I thought was uh, kind of standardized. I, I did my PhD research about soil testing methods. Um, like looking at whether the malic three extractant or the ammonium acetate extractant would be more useful for making fertilizer recommendations, that kind of stuff. Soil sampling is a four-step process, right? Uh, it's it's got sampling, it's got lab analysis, it's got interpretation, and it's got recommendations based on that interpretation. And it, and I realized uh, back in 2020, I was like, I did my PhD research about the lab analysis and a little bit about interpretation. And then I developed MLSN, the MLSN guidelines together with Larry Stoll and Wendy Galerinter from Pace Turf. And that's about interpretation and recommendation. And I'm like, man, I've spent a lot of time studying the lab analysis and the interpretation and the recommendation. And I, I hadn't paid so much attention to sampling, just like I hadn't paid much attention to physical testing. I realized I hadn't paid much attention to sampling. And so As what has surprised me since 2020, four years ago, when I first started looking into this, is um, man, people do this in so many different ways. Uh, Like composite sampling. I ask people do you take a single core if you're going to do a nutrient sample? Do you take a single core from a green, or do you take like three subsamples and mix them together, five, ten? And some people responded they take uh, almost thirty subsamples, wow. and and wow. I was like wow, and it's like wait a second, um, there's people that are taking anywhere from one to thirty, and and then then there's there's so many things that are not standardized. I'm like, of course the laboratory procedures are standardized. But the interpretation and recommendation, there's different ways to do it, but it can be kind of standardized. But if you're starting off with samples that are taken in such strange ways, it's difficult to do that interpretation. So I've been interested in like, what's the industry standard? And then uh, I'll, I'll share my screen again. I found this article from Rutgers that said... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a, a quotation now. A standard recommendation seems to be what I found in the soil sampling instructions for turf grass from Rutgers. For testing of a single putting green, they recommend a composite sample be made up of 12 to 15 subsamples. The instructions read, plan to collect multiple subsamples randomly within each defined area to obtain a representation representative sample for a uniform sports field or fairway 20 to 30 subsample locations may be needed whereas 12 to 15 subsamples may be adequate on a golf green or tee placing the soil subsamples in a clean plastic bucket and then from that you would obtain a composite sample so uh I I started off a long series of blog posts with that of just like okay if this is what's standard, that that's sort of standard. But then I did some surveys, and less than fifty percent of the people that have answered the survey I've done it on Twitter, I did it as an email newsletter, and I did it on Instagram. And I think on each one of the different polls that I've sent out, less than fifty percent of the people are taking that many sub samples, and. So I've been so curious, but I've been asking the general public. And then I thought, wait a second, I know people that should know about this, people like Brian Mavis. So when you were in Phoenix, I sent you an email and uh, I, I put some questions. I've, I've written down those questions here and I'm going to ask them to you now. Um, I've written on my, on my Brookside Labs uh, note, notepad. Um, I'm going to ask you the questions that I sent you in the email about composite sampling and about other things related to sampling for nutrients. And I wanted to get your answers for that because my idea is, um, let me ask people like you and other people in the turf grass industry who study and do research into soil nutrition and soil testing... And let me just figure out, uh, not, not I kind of know what the general public does, which is all over the place. I mean, and it's not the general public. It's, golf, it's professional turf grass managers. It's all over the place with the way the sampling's done. And now I'm like, let me ask some professionals how the sampling's done. And eventually I foresee what this leads to is um, me being a little bit more um, outspoken in what my recommendations are. But before I I I become very outspoken in my recommendations, I wanted to learn what standard. Not it. it I'll, I'll say again, it's obvious to me that what what everybody's doing is all over the place, and I wanted to see. May I? I guess maybe what the professionals, the 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 people who should know about this, maybe we're all over the place too. So, are you ready, Brian?
1: I am. Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay i think it's a really good topic and uh it is a little surprising how varied it still is um one thing i would say to the very to the very beginning of all that i remember when i first started there was some research done that showed um i was i believe it was more on the ag side of things but regardless um their sampling zones are five to 15 acres per sample and after some point i believe it was uh it was between that 12 to 15 samples per area per zone where if they added more they really didn't change the number so it was like a diminishing returns whether you pulled 15 or you pulled 30 you were still ending up with the same results as long as the soil type was the same throughout that whole zone so in that situation there Yeah, you've got a 5 to 15-acre zone, and there aren't any fairways that I'm aware of that are 15 acres. But, um, yeah, so if you're pulling 30 samples per fairway, I always say err on the high side for sure, um, because then you know you've got more than enough there. Because the last thing you want to do is take a sample and not have enough material at the lab to run the tests. Um, Then you've got to do it all over again. But yeah, that twelve to fifteen number is a really good number, for sure.
0: Thank you. Um, yeah, and I've talked to some people. I I think of the um, minimum sample size is one issue, and and of course it's important that you send. It's it's absolutely critical that you send enough material. And I've talked to a lot of golf course superintendents who said they. Th- They kind of thought that the reason for taking so many subsamples was to get enough material for the lab to test. The lab actually doesn't need that much material. And the reason for the composite sampling is really to try to get the average of the area Mm -hmm. and, and to take out some of the variability. Um, But let's go back to the zones. So the, I sent five questions um, in that email that I sent out when you were in Phoenix. Uh, and the first one was, do you think of testing zone by zone? Like, uh, so I said for a typical 18 hole golf course, would you think of T's are one zone fairways are another zone greens are another zone rough is another zone? Is, is that how you think of it?
1: I do. Yeah. Because you've got different management strategies and, um, fertility programs for each one of those areas. So absolutely. Yeah. Those are, those are what I, I think of when I, when I refer to zones for sure.
0: Okay. So, so do I, so we're, we're on the same page there. And then the, the next question was, assuming that you're thinking of, uh, of, of the course in zones like that, how many samples would you typically, or like how many samples from the fairway zone would you, Submit. How many samples from the green zone would you typically submit? And I, and I asked that question in the context of a 18-hole golf course.
1: So a really good program in my mind is we pick six greens, six tees, six fairways. So maybe you pick six holes on the golf course. You just start with hole one, and then every third hole, you're sampling every three years then. So if you're on a three-year rotation, you're back to those same ones every three years. Um, I've got some courses I work with that that's the program that they're on. So we'll pick, we'll do greens, tees, fairways on hole one, four, seven, ten, and so on. And then the next year we'll start with hole two, five, eight, and then just keep rotating through that way. Um, Once you get a map of the entire property, though, you know where all those nutrient numbers are. I feel like then it's a good good idea to start grouping some areas. So say holes one through five are all very similar, or one through three, and then we pick one of those holes to be representative each year. Um, Once you've got a baseline for the whole property, then I think it's a good idea. So then if you're checking the same area each year, then you're seeing the changes. You're taking out some of the extra stuff as far as a chance for uh, variables, I guess, to see those differences. So if we can sample that same area each year, and then maybe you've got a problem area, well, we'll throw that in too, and we'll do that specifically, but then we can monitor. But once you get that baseline, once you get the whole course covered, um, I think that's a pretty good program to go with. Now you have some places where Um, There's not much room for error Um, and budget really isn't the constraint as far as doing the sampling. So they may that year one, they may want to sample everything, every green, every tee, every fairway, just because they can't have mistakes. There's just no room for error. So there are some situations where that's that's the case. Um, And if it's a sandy site, and I know I think this is leading into one of your other questions, how often do we sample? Um, Really? that one can be a little bit site-specific. It's a really sandy site and we have poor water quality. You probably wanna monitor that more than just once a year. You wanna keep an eye on things multiple times. And it's one of those where, yeah, if we get into a rainy stretch, we know things are uh, gonna be pretty clean. But if it's a dry stretch and we're we're accumulating some salts from the irrigation water, absolutely. It may be every other month where you're checking things. So that's where it does depend a little bit on your site, um, the frequency of testing that you need. And if you have a problem green that's tucked in a corner in a hole that's got no air movement and limited sunlight, you may want to monitor that one a little more closely and maybe that one's once a month um, just with some nutrient samples uh, just to see what's going on there because there is very little room for error uh, before turf decline is uh, is seen. So that's kind of a long answer I think to that question, but. Uh, We touched on a, maybe touched on a couple of the questions there.
0: People, people that answer this, they often um, make it what seems to me a little bit more complicated than my answer. Um, And because I'm kind of thinking of like uh, not so much diagnosing problems, which for me is a different kind of testing. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking more of routine nutrient recommendations, and so to me that's like it's annual so it just kind of default like i'm going to be making recommendations annually um and then i'm like okay when when you've got the problem areas or something that's a com- that's a completely different type of testing of comparing yep. good area sample to bad area sample and trying to figure out what specific things are different between the good area and the bad area that's not for making fertilizer recommendations so much as it is to diagnose problems.
1: Problem solving, yeah, um, absolutely.
0: And and you know, soil testing can be really useful for that. Um, but let's just let me try to pin you down on the eighteen yeah. hole. Uh, for for you work with a lot of clients. Let's say let's let's say I'm a a new client of yours. I, I'm a eighteen hole golf course, uh, forty years old and I say, uh, I don't, Yeah, I've got a medium budget, Uh, are you going to recommend 666 and then we'll rotate through the first couple of years?
1: That's a really good baseline, absolutely, and I mean, you know as well as anybody, it's hard to make a recommendation on just a couple of samples, so the more representation you have of the course and say, we do a third of it um, each year, that Gives me a comfort level to know that I'm making good recommendations for the for the client, so yeah, that six six and six is a pretty good program to um, be able to m- make some interpretations and make recommendations for the property, for sure. Very
0: very very good. Thank you. Uh, yep. I typically do six three three, so I'm usually recommending uh, six greens, three tees, three fairways. And I want people to test the rough if they're going to be fertilizing the rough because mm-hmm. rough can be a a big area. And so if you don't have healthy grass, you could have more weeds. And also because it's a big area, you could spend a lot of money on fertilizer. So it's important to use the right fertilizer have the healthiest grass, so you don't have too much growth, so maybe you can predict some of the mineralization that might happen so you could minimize weeds. There's so many reasons why you should know what the rough is like too. So, I, And, man, I, I certainly struggle in Asia. I struggle in Asia to get people to test fairways. People just want to test greens, greens, greens. And I'm like, but you're spending way more money on fertilizer on Fairways, so to make sure that you're spending that money wisely, because the fairways are such a larger area, why, why can't we test this? Um, um, and so I, I guess because I've struggled so much to even get people to test fairways, like I'm like, man, if if I can get people to test three fairways, that's a win for me. Uh, and so, f- in in the part of the world where I work a lot, getting uh, six fairways is is like. Uh, that would be like a nice dream. But yeah, that's you're right. Gotcha. That that. That's a good way to do it. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's and I, I three is kind of an absolute minimum to and it goes back to how, how good do you want the recommendations to be? Um, if we're only basing it on one or two fairways, it's kind of hard to extrapolate that and make it useful for all the fairways. And if you're on a site that's got some serious topography change where you've got some different soil types that makes it really challenging and I think limits uh, our ability to make those recommendations
0: Uh, I agree completely Um, so let's do the last question and then go back to the complicated one The, the last question is sampling depth and what do you recommend for sampling depth which is so critical and i'm not sure that everybody pays enough attention to that especially when you're checking year after year like you better sample the exact same depth if yeah. you want to compare the results yeah,
1: and i start with uh i'll take a file to my soil probe and mark my depths on my probes so i know exactly where those are and i might be plus or minus a couple millimeters here or there but it's going to be pretty darn exact from year to year so um, for greens, if I've got, uh, greens that are mostly annual bluegrass or poa, I'm going to stay at three inch depths. Um, if it's bent grass, I'm going to go to six inches. I try to keep that pretty standard.
0: So you're, you're three or six.
1: Yeah, Depending on the variety of turf on there.
0: So poa gets three. Yep. Yeah. Bent gets six. Yeah. And bent POA gets?
1: It's uh, going to be one of those where it's probably going to air more towards the side of uh, the three-inch depth if it's a mixture of the two. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> And one one thing, too, I guess with that, if it's a soil-based green and it's got a sand cap on top of it from all the years of top dressing and cultural practices, um, especially if it's POA, I'm going to stay out of the soil that's underneath um, I'm going to try to get mostly that sand cap because that's where the majority of the roots are feeding from anyways.
0: Okay. And I I generally recommend 4 inches or 10 centimeters because mm-hmm. I like that root zone. And to me, that's a nice compromise. So I generally do 4 inches. Um, I, 6 inches to me for bank grass is too deep. Uh, because I rarely see uh, mature bentgrass greens that have significant roots down to that depth. Uh, maybe maybe in your part of the world or the, the way people manage the grass, they do get deeper. I, uh, like I have people tell me that four inches is too deep. And I say, well, let's be aspirational uh, about our roots. Because I think like uh, I, I, I like being consistent at four inches. Because it also lets us compare our results with other people, so we can say like, so if everybody's at at four inches, certainly with with my clients, most of them are doing four inches, so we can compare nicely. Um, gotcha. But I do have some people with POA; they're like they they want a sample shorter, and I say let's just be aspirational. And like people with bank grass, usually I don't have too many people saying I'm leaving so many roots in the in the soil.
1: Yeah. And I would say it's in my area, at least part of the world, it seems pretty common that we'll see backgrass roots in that six inch range. Um, it's that's not out of the question.
0: Nice. So, that's that's. Yeah, that's uh, terrific.
1: A, a good problem to have for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so so now let's go to the the one that I'm really interested really, uh, excited about, which is the number of sub samples. So, so, um, we obviously need enough for the minimum sample size. So we could, if if you take one cup cutter, that's going to give you the minimum sample size for, for nutrient testing, right? For physical testing, you've got that excellent article said you should take like six cup cutters. It depends the type of, of physical testing you're going to get done, but to get enough material for physical testing, you need you need a substantial amount of material for, mm-hmm. um, for actually to get the minimum sample size. If you go to the four inch depth, uh, you can do that with like an inch and a half diameter single core. So that's going to give you a minimum sample size. It's, it's not very much material. Right now that blog post that I showed from Rutgers, they are recommending, uh, Plan to collect multiple subsamples randomly. And um, for a putting green, 12 to 15 subsamples may be adequate on a golf green or tee. Now that that's really like a normal recommendation. But, but here's what I'm thinking. If you, you mentioned like you want to have like definitely have more than three fairways, definitely have more than three greens because we're trying to check different areas. So if we take a single core from green one and a single core from green four and a single core from green seven and a single core from green 10, we, we're still going to get an average out of that. But now we also capture more of the variability,
1: absolutely because one green yeah might be draining better than another one and then you're going to completely miss the one that's uh, not draining well and not be able to see some of that stuff
0: well if you, th- what i'm saying is if if you if you test green one i'm saying green one is going to have like um it's it's going to have some areas have 44 parts per million potassium and some areas have 63 parts per million potassium it it's going to vary in potassium and green 4 is also going to vary and when we take the composite samples we lose the low and the high because we ne- we we got it in one of our subsamples we definitely got the low in one of our subsamples we got the high in one of our subsamples but we've mixed it all together now so we're just getting the average so we we lost our low and the i'm i'm really wanting to figure out what the low is so the problem is by the fact of doing the composite samplings, we lose our lows and our highs, and we're already we're averaging it twice because we're averaging it when we when we composite it, and then we'll average it again across green to green, like if you if you say what's the average for the course right now is is the average of green one four seven and ten, um, but it's on the individual green level or on the individual fairway level when we do the composite samples we miss the lowest values
1: absolutely and i think when i when i uh when i present the data i guess uh track the data for everybody i'll have each individual area that's sampled but then there's an average at the bottom that if they wanted a composite of everything we can see what that average would would be um but yeah don't lose that individual green or that individual fairway those properties by combining them all together at the beginning, definitely keep those separate. So yeah, you can make those site specific recommendations.
0: Yes. So, so I'm definitely, I'm going one step further. So mm. I'm saying, okay, we're testing a sample from green one and I definitely don't want to sample green one and green four and green seven and green 10 and mix those together. What right. I'm saying What I'm saying is when I take my soil probe to collect the sample on green one, I only take one core. That is my sample from green one. I, okay, okay? now I might, now I might've hit a spot on that green that's low, or I might've hit a spot on that green that's average for that green, or I might've hit a spot on that green that's high. I don't know. And I think that worries people and nobody wants to do it. But then I go to green four, I bring my soil probe, I take a single core. I go to green seven, I take a single core. And so as we take multiple samples, we're going to get more. Would you agree that we would get more variability that way? By the, not- way
1: you were just, the way you were just describing? Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, versus you taking 12 to 15 samples per green, I think you're gonna get a lot more consistency in your numbers from year to year um, and being able to track those changes. It almost goes back to my comments in the physical sampling. Um, If you take one core and say that it's a two inch diameter core for your physical samples and say, one year you hit an aeration hole that's full of sand, that's a half inch aeration hole, that's 25% of your sample the next year you don't hit that, yeah, your numbers are gonna jump around quite a bit. So the same thing, if you pull one core for a nutrient sample on a green, I think you have a much greater chance of variability from year to year and from time to time of doing it. So absolutely, I would say, I really like, I mean, 12 to 15 is a good number. One, I do do a handful of saturated soil tests too, just to get an idea of what's highly soluble in soil solution. And for that testing, you need a full cup, a measuring cup of material for that sample alone. So yeah, you need some quantity. Um, so yeah, that twelve to fifteen subsamples per green is a really good number to get you that quantity too.
0: It it gets you that quantity, it gets you stability. W- yes. What what I'm what I'm suggesting, what what I've been uh interested in for the past uh four or five years is that, wait a second, maybe it's better to know what the variability is. Maybe it would, it's counterintuitive, but maybe it's better to get a wider range of variability to really. So when we go sample a golf course, if we do single core sampling, we're going to get some samples are lower. Some samples are higher we can still get an average from that if we take enough right we we can still get a good average by taking enough but now we can get lower values and we can get higher values and we can get a better understanding of the full range of chemical properties that exist on the property
1: interesting so yeah one one scenario that might tie into that really well is, okay, you know the front area of a certain green, it's not draining well, and there's constantly black layer there. You pull a sample from that spot, your nutrient levels are going to be way higher than in an area of that same green that is draining perfectly fine. So low area versus high area of that same green, yeah, you're going to have a lot of variability. So interesting, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so this is like I, I've mentioned before. Like I allude to this and say this should be like if people thought MLSN was controversial, yeah. uh, I think the single core sampling would be even more controversial. But it's yeah. it's something that uh, is quite interesting to me. So uh, I just so your recommendation is twelve to fifteen, and that's what you tr- is you tried to do like ten at least. Is that what? Mm when you sample absolute yourself
1: minimum yeah absolute minimum of 10 um just to have a representation of the entire area and then um yeah typically it's going to be a 12 to 15 and usually i usually have a feel for it i don't know just uh, so many years of doing it now i need to hit a mark of so much enough material in the sample bag that yeah i've got enough sample to send to the lab and i'm very fortunate i know i'm only an hour and a half from the lab the lab's based here in ohio and I can drop off samples. I don't have to pay all the extra freight and shipping and drying samples ahead of time. So I'm very fortunate on that side of things. But um, yeah, yeah. uh, What
0: diameter sampler do you use?
1: uh, Three quarter inch.
0: Nice. And
1: one little little tip. um, I'm going to give a plug to uh, Mr. Dave Smith out of Ontario. Um, He taught me my, uh, I think it was my second year back in 2001, to uh, cut the end of the soil probe off and uh, collect your samples that way. Then the turf, you can leave the turf behind. You shave it right next to the uh, base of the plant. And it's a very quick, clean process. And uh, the probes last much longer that way too.
0: How does, so you, we're talking <laughs> about like the tapered tip, right? You're you The, cut the, the
1: t- closed end tip. Yeah, the tip that's closed in, you cut that off. Okay. So it's a basically a U shape at the end.
0: Okay. Oh, very yeah, clean that's...
1: process, and the the sample slides right out. And uh, yeah, I give Dave uh, a lot of credit for that because that's that's an ingenious uh, way to do it.
0: That that is good. And so you would then fill the fill the hole with with roots own sand, cut the grass off, and put the grass cap back on the hole. Is that how you do it?
1: You actually, uh, the real, uh, benefit of it is you don't even take the turf off. Um, when you're, when you shove the probe in, you can peel the turf back just a little bit. So you don't even pull, you don't even take the turf off of there and it just steps right back down in place. So you don't have to fill anything in. It might end up looking like a ball mark or something like that when it's all done.
0: Okay. So <clears throat> how much of the grass at the top, uh, gets removed from the sample? At the, I,
1: at the very base yeah at the base of the the crowns there and that gets shaved off in that method okay yeah
0: i used to do that when I did my phd research i always used to pinch the uh I, I i didn't cut the the tip of the probe off so i was using the regular kind of probe and yeah. i i would uh extract that core and then just like twist off the the grass like as short as I could twist it off i would twist it off so like hold the soil with one hand twist off the grass with the other just like really just right at the at the the surface um but then it's like uh now i'm like that's so random the lab has machinery that can take it off so i recommend now to send the whole sample so that every year it's the uh it's the lab machinery that that uh Gets rid of that. All gotcha. right. Well, we've we've talked about physical testing, nutrient testing. We've used up all of our time. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm going to make sure that I put a link to your website, link to the article. If people uh, want to get more information from you, uh, they can do it that way.
1: Sounds great. No, it's been a pleasure, and uh, really enjoyed this, Micah. It's uh, you do a great job of informing everybody, and. Uh, keeping up on things. And no, it's, uh, it's been great to be a part of this.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I want to talk with you some more sometime uh, about sampling and testing. But I I thought, while we have this schedule, where we can both do it, let's just get started. Let's have the first conversation now. So thanks so much, Brian, really appreciate it.
1: Likewise. Thank you, Micah. All
0: right. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening, watching for ATC from Trong, Thailand. I'm Micah Woods. Bye-bye.